My name is Jim. I'm a great free covering Al-Anon. Let's get this speaker right from the, is the mic about right or can you hear me in the back? Okay. All right. I usually project pretty well, so uh, if, uh, if I get too loud, just kind of calm me down, okay? So we'll, we'll do that. Uh, I want to, uh, first, I want to thank uh, the committee for inviting us here. It's uh, just been wonderful and joyous. Chris, those of you who heard Christy uh, uh, this morning know that uh, she said we needed this time and uh, uh, together, and we certainly did. It seems like um, whenever we're invited off uh, to speak that it happens at just the right time. It's a time when we need it. And so uh, we we gained a lot. Uh, we gained a lot from this weekend. We needed some time together and a time to be surrounded by friends in the fellowship, and we've certainly gotten that. But I want to thank uh, uh, thank you for that opportunity to to bring us here. Uh, I want to certainly want to thank Felma and Jack. They've just been wonderful from the time that they adjusted their schedule to picking us up at the airport with our plane laid until uh, they've just been wonderful host and hostess, and certainly have uh, have enjoyed that. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank the phone calls from people ahead of time uh, that made us feel welcome before we got here. I want to thank Edith, wherever she was, for just a wonderful, warm letter. Uh, it was just uh, 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 it was a real special gift to receive that letter wherever Edith is before uh, before we got here. Um, the beautiful basket in the room, the beautiful meals, a wonderful fellowship. Uh, God is good. Uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful time so far. And uh, after I finish speaking tonight, I'll be able to enjoy myself at the dance, and uh, so will uh, it'll even get better in about a, about an hour from now. I, uh, uh, I am um, a little nervous tonight. For some, sometimes I'm more nervous than others, but just a little nervous tonight. Uh, and uh, take a moment to calm down. I guess the one of the things that that I like to to think about and and uh, talking about the the joy of the program and what was just called uh, called the Al-Anon Promises and that was a new reading for me and I'm going to go go and get that book and read that in page 269. But I do uh, I do think we should experience the joy of this program uh, and I think that that's what I've seen here uh, this weekend is a great deal of uh, joy. But you know we Al-Anons are not always thought of as the most joyful laughing lot. Um, in fact, I remember it's been wonderful seeing Billy again, and and because and, uh, uh, I the Alpha group in, in Dallas was my first home group, and I've known her since I first started in the program in 1979. Uh, but uh, I remember one of the first things that I, I saw in, in Alpha is in a lot of places the, the the AAs meet in one room, and then there's a single wall, and the Alanons met in the other room, and it seemed that quite often from the other room chuckles of laughter would come up quite often. And it seemed that in our room, those chuckles of laughter came up less frequently. <laughs> but, but when, uh, but when those chuckles of laughter did come up from our room, there looked like there were a lot of nervous alcoholics afterward when we got together after the meetings. <laughs> because for some reason, I think they thought we were, we were talking about them. Well, I think it's important. Uh, there are a lot of uh, AA jokes that uh, that alcoholics tell about themselves, and there are a lot of Al-Anon jokes that alcoholics tell about us. But I think it's important that we tell jokes about ourselves. And, um, and one of my favorite uh, Al-Anon jokes is, is the light bulb. You know, you've heard all the light bulb stories about you know how many you know uh, how many light bulbs does it you know how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? You know, only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. You know. And, you know, we know how many you know how many Alanons it takes to change a light bulb. It says uh, says none. You know, Alanon will just sit back, detach, and tell the light bulb to screw itself. <laughs> but my favorite Alanon joke is about how you can tell an Alanon at the time of of uh, his or her death because someone else's life will flash before their very eyes. <laughs> uh, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Georgia called Manchester, a town of about 5,000 people. My father was a professional man, a dentist, and, uh, and an alcoholic. Um, he, uh, his alcoholism progressed during that time. and. Um, and I don't know how much of uh, who I am today had to do with that, but I know it had a lot to do with who I am today. I remember um, uh, 
early on in life, the, I don't remember the drinking being a real problem. I'm not sure exactly when it started, but as I began to get 10, 11, or 12, I know that that had begun, begun to take some toll. But even before I recognized alcohol as a problem in my life, I look at myself back at that time and I realize that I was a young youngster with some problems. Because you see, at about the time of age 11 or, or 12 through there, I remember my father was going to buy a new car. And it was the year, the first year that the Ford Galaxy LTD came out. The very first year it came out and there was a huge promotion by Ford Motor Company for the Ford Galaxy LTD. Top of the line Ford, the limited edition. And it was quieter than a Rolls Royce. They, you know, they had measured the quietness in a Rolls Royce with some kind of meter and that in the Ford Galaxy LTD. And it was quieter than a Rolls Royce. And my father was going to buy a new car and I was excited because we were going to have a Ford Galaxy LTD. And my father came home with a Ford Galaxy period. And I was upset. Because I thought at the age of 11 or 12 that I deserved to ride around in an LTD. <laughs> that somehow, because of just who I was or something, that I deserved to ride around in the top-of-the-line model. And I remember getting in the back of that car and my father proudly driving us around the block in his new car. And I sat in the back and I was pissed. You know, looking back at that young man... I'm not sure that I like him very much. Because you see, you know, through the program of re my program of recovery and through these 12 steps and the fellowship of, of Al-Anon and, our, and our, our brother organization AA, you know, I've learned that yes, you know, yes, you know, I have retained so much. I have been given so much and I'm grateful for so much. The very last prayer I would ever say today is God, please give me what I deserve. So, so much would be taken away because God has given me tremendous gifts, tremendous gifts, so much that you know, my heart just is, is just filled with gratitude so often. But when I look back and think, yes, I thought somehow life owed me something. I deserve something for some unknown reason. My father did. Uh, his alcoholism certainly affected me. I was sharing with, with someone you know, uh, with, with Rick just, just during, during dinner about uh, my father was a professional man and and everyone in that town, I think, knew he was a—he was an alcoholic, knew he was a drunk, and uh, it was never talked about. But I knew that. And times when the school secretary would call his office was right across from the high school, and she would call and say, "They need you over at your dad's office, Jim." And I'd walk over there, and he'd be too drunk, and they'd ask me to carry him home. Uh, his staff would ask me to carry him home because he lived about 30 miles away with my grandparents. But he went off to. Uh, to Dr. John Mooney's house in Statesboro, and Dr. Mooney was a recovering alcoholic, and he opened up his house to people, and he went there and he sobered up and came home a little bit sooner than Dr. John, I think, wanted him to, but he came home on the day that I graduated, valedictorian from that tremendous high school class of about 70, <laughs> but he wanted to see me graduate, and he remained sober for five years until he died in a car accident. I'm real grateful for for his sobriety and his time in AA because you see immediately after he he became sober I went away to school uh, to Duke University uh, to go to college and I became involved but he gave me a big book and I read the big book and I had that that big book up on the shelf in my college room and several of my college fraternity brothers would ask me about it and I would tell them that my father was an alcoholic and you know several of them had uh, fathers that they were concerned about their drinking too and, you know, and I wasn't 12-stepping them, and I hadn't gone to Alateen, and I wasn't in Al-Anon, but I began to, I think I had some openness to this idea of alcoholism through his, through his recovery. For those of you who were here this morning, you heard that my father married a woman who had had about a num number of years of sobriety at that point, and she became, well, we didn't call her our stepmother, we called her our other mother. We also called her pal, or Lillian was her name, and she was the, the secretary of the Georgia State Assembly for for all, for, from the very first time the Georgia State Assembly of AA had a secretary until the time she died. But Lillian was a wonderful, wonderful person and became just a major part of, of, of my life. She, um, but they were, 
they, they got in and they had this wonderful AA home and, and I did read the big book and, and I began to understand some about this disease. Didn't work those steps myself because you see I didn't need it. But, um, but I realized in looking back that some, some special things happened. One night in July, you know, it was a beautiful July night. I was home for the summer from college and, and I, and my dad asked me, he wanted me to go outside and, and as we went outside and we sat on just the trunk of the car and we looked up uh, in this town and it's a little t- where he was living was Pine Mount, which is a town of about a thousand, so no, not many city lights to disturb the starry July sky. And as I look back at that night, it was the most that night had the most stars in the sky of any night that I have ever seen before or since. And as we looked at the, those stars, my dad asked me, he says, Jim, do you remember a letter you wrote me when I was at Dr. John's? And I did remember the letter very vividly because I remember struggling with what to say to my, my, my drunken father as he was attempting to get sober. And he said, in that letter you said, Dad, I love you because any son should love, would love their father, but I have no respect for you. And he said, Jim, in the past two years, he says, How, do you respect me today? And I said, of course, Dad, of course I respect you today. Can't you tell, I mean, from the way that I've treated you in our talks and everything, of course I respect you today. And he said, Jim, I just need to hear the words. I need to hear the words. And we talked for a while, and, and he said, well, good. He says, because you know that letter is sitting in the top drawer of my chest of drawers, and I want to tear it up and throw it away. And it's something that I need to remember in my life, that, you know, there are two important things. One is my behaviors and my attitudes, but also my words. Yeah, it's okay for me to act lovingly to Christy, but I also need to tell her that I love her. Yeah. It's okay for me to act lovingly to my children, but I need to tell them that I love them. Yeah. You know, the words are very important. Actions are too, and the two need to go together. You know, in al I've learned to think of things in a little differently, because you see, our, our ODAT talks about that every single human being, alcoholic or not, drunk or not, deserves our respect simply because they are a fellow child of God. You know, and today I realize that, yes, I would respect my father today. I would not use that word. Just because he was a fellow child of God. Now, I did not admire my father's alcoholism, and I did not admire what alcoholism had done to my father. But today I believe that drunk or sober, I could respect him just as a fellow child of God. Because you see, a lot of my problem in life has always been is that I've even felt either felt that I was better than or worse than. Better than or worse than. And both are destructive. You know, I, it's like a pulley system. This is the way I was all my life. You know, pulley system. I was always comparing myself to other people. You know, I was better than they were and they were down here. Or I, they were up there and I was down here and always comparing myself to others. Yeah. And both are destructive because either, either low self-esteem or arrogant as I could be. And what recovery has allowed me to do is to cut that cord of that pulley system so I can just be who I am and not always having to measure myself up to, up to you and either better than you or worse than you. Respect every other human being simply because they are a fellow child of God. You see, today I believe I'm a prince. You know, uh, my God happens to be a king, and I'm a prince. He's my father. That makes me a very, very special person. But each one of you is either a prince or a princess, too. And so I'm no more special than you are. You know, when I can remember that, when I can treat myself like I'm a prince, and when I can remember to treat you like you are a prince or a princess, life is good. I am happy. Things go well. My spiritual life is good. But some, when I forget that you are a prince or a princess, you know, when I get to the shopping, when I get to that, that line at the grocery store and there is someone checking me out, and I begin to think of her as the slowest, dumbest person who has ever checked out anybody at the grocery store and doesn't she understand how busy I am and how important I am and how I am in a hurry and I need to get out of here, you know, my life is in turmoil. When I can remember that she's a princess, I'm okay. 
You know, and I get out of the grocery store in exactly the same amount of time. <laughs> it takes exactly how long it's supposed to take. Yeah. And yet one way I can leave full of turmoil and another way I can leave and be okay. I met Christy at Duke. <clears throat> we, uh, we fell, we fell in love, uh, rather slowly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> happily and with, and we had a lot of fun. Our, we, we became friends. Uh, uh, we were kissing friends. Rick, I was talking to Rick about that, but you know, we, we were friends. We were kissing friends. But uh, but I had another girlfriend, and she was away at college. She was a sorority. Uh, she was away doing her junior year abroad, and and she was uh, a sorority sister of Christy. So we knew I had this girlfriend over in Europe, and we were just going to have fun for a year. And we dated, and we, but but we knew there was no, you know, there was going to be no future to this relationship. And so we just had a good time. Christy was coming off of a rather serious relationship, and so yeah, we had a good time. And and I went over to over to Europe and, and traveled uh, uh, in a group with uh, with this other girl. And while I was over in Europe, I realized I was with the wrong girl. I wanted to be with Christy. <laughs> yeah, and came back that fall and professed my love for her. And um, uh, a year later, we were engaged. When I was graduated from college, and then two years later, we were married. Uh, after Christy graduated from nursing school at Duke. And at that time, I'd finished my first year in medical school at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. And life was good. Uh, we, we worked hard. We partied hard. As Christy shared this morning, sometimes when we would drink on the weekends and party, I tried to keep up with her, and I would get drunk, and she'd drive me home. <laughs> because I didn't have the tolerance she did. And um, we, uh, well, we had a good time, and drinking was not, a, was not a problem. Drinking was not a problem. I went ahead and finished medical school. Went to uh, uh, Parkland uh, Hospital in Dallas to do my internship and residency in internal medicine, and uh, uh, and moved moved to Dallas. We um, and that's a hard life. That's a hard life. Hard hard work. And I was at the hospital for twenty. I was at the hospital for thirty six hours. Home for about twelve hours. At the hospital for twelve hours. Home for twelve hours. And then at the hospital for thirty six hours again. And that's pretty much the way it went for the first two years. All right, not much time at home. And uh, we realized this was going to be difficult. We had a newborn daughter uh, who, was, who had joined our, joined our home. We brought into the world, and she was there. And, uh, and I knew that Christy and I were not as close as we had been. But you see, that was okay because we had the perfect marriage. We had had the perfect marriage. We had the perfect friends. We were going to have the perfect life, and everything was going to be wonderful. And you see, there's a very nice thing about perfection. You don't have to work on it. So we were just going to spend three years at this time when I was going to primarily be doing all my work at the hospital. She was going to stay home, work in nursing school, raise our daughter. And then after three years, then we would kind of get back together and resume our marriage where it was in the perfect marriage and everything was going to be okay. So you see, as things began to not fall apart, but just lose that closeness, it really didn't matter. Until one night, I came home to a darkened apartment And Ray, our daughter, was asleep in her bedroom, and Christy was on the bed, curled up on our bed in our bedroom, crying, and I knew something terrible had happened. I thought maybe your parents had died in a, in a you know, plane crash or something awful had happened along those lines, something was wrong with one of her brothers or whatever. But no, it was not that. She told me the story of her drug addiction. Now she was addicted to prescription drugs and prescription opiate drugs. <clears throat> and I held her in my arms and I said, sweetheart, I don't understand all of this, but we're going to get help for you. Now, those of you who heard Christy talk, tells you, you know, she told you that she thought that the reason that I had some of this understanding of whatever was because of my father's recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous and I had some understanding of addiction, but I don't know whether or not it was that or just plain outright denial. I tend to think the latter. <laughs> Because you see, what I did was, is I said, all right, we have a problem here. I'm going to go down to the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, who they ran the residency program at Parkland. The chairman of the Department of Psychiatry asked for the best psychiatrist in addiction medicine in the city of Dallas, Texas. I was going to make Christy an appointment to see him, and I had taken care of that problem and was ready to go on to the next. All right? Yeah. You know, fixed it. You know? So I made her that appointment, and everything. Was, you know, I thought everything was going to be okay. Yeah. 
a, um, a few weeks later, uh, Christy, uh, in the meantime, had begun to drink a quart of, uh, of vodka, a quart of old granddad at that point. She's drinking, still on bourbon. But she's drinking a quart of liquor a day, and I had no idea because of her high tolerance, drinking a little bit all day long. And she called our, my stepmother, our other mother, Lillian, out to Dallas, Texas. And Christy shared with her, for those of you who heard Christy this morning, says shared with her drug addiction, failed to mention that she was drinking that quart of uh, bourbon a day. All right. But Lillian said, we all can go to a meeting. All right. And so, you know, I always did what I was supposed to do. I had always done what I was supposed to do. And if I was supposed to go to Al-Anon, I was going to be a good, supportive husband and go to Al-Anon. And I went to Al-Anon, and I went to that first meeting, and... Uh, uh, it, it, it was at Preston, and I don't remember who first came up to me, but I remember this lady came up and she said, oh, so does your wife have a problem with drinking? I said, oh, no, no. said, so she just has, I don't have any problem with her drinking. She says, it's just these drugs that are a problem. Now, this is my story. This is my experience, strength, and hope, okay? All right? That's, this is my story. And that lady just patted me on the back. She said, she didn't say, we don't like your kind here. <laughs> she didn't say you need to go someplace else for help she patted me on the back and said keep coming back <laughs> yeah and so I sat down I mean I, I, I learned the rules of the game pretty quickly I mean you know I'm, I'm a fairly smart guy I didn't sit there at the meetings and say oh well I don't have any problem with my wife drinking I just don't want her using these drugs you know I was you know and I, and I was you know I was realized the rules of the game and yeah I did that but you know I still Alcohol wasn't a problem in my mind. That was in April of 1979 when I first started going to meetings and continued to go. In July of 1979, we came back uh, to this area of the country in order to look for a place for me to set up my practice. I was a year away from that. But I needed only got two weeks of vacation a year, and we needed to come back. And we traveled to North Carolina and then Georgia looking for a place, uh, some practice opportunities for me that I moved to the next year. We went to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where Christie's brother lived. And uh, he was not there that, that first night we were there, but he had left a key for us, and we let ourselves in, and we were sitting there, and, and that night, and something strange began to happen. Christie's behavior was erratic. She was not making total sense in what she was saying. Her words were slightly slurred. Her balance seemed to be off somewhat. And I observed this carefully, quite concerned about what I saw happening, on, happening before my very eyes. And with my astute medical knowledge, having had four years of college, four years of medical school, and two years of one of the best internal medicine residency programs in the country under my belt, I immediately began to think, she is having a transient ischemic attack, a stroke. <laughs> Or she has acute Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> Making careful mental notes, not mentioning anything about this to her, but I was the least bit suspicious. <laughs> Made careful mental notes so that I could go back when we got back to Dallas and go to the chairman of the Department of Neurology. I'll, notice I always went to the chairman of the department, go right to the very top. All right? Described to him this so that we could get some idea of what was going on. The next morning woke up and the symptoms of the syndrome of the night before had disappeared. Quite we relieved, we went through that, that day. I, I observed her carefully, again, not mentioning anything, not wanting to embarrass her or me by mentioning any of this, and, uh, but uh, concerned that uh, it could return. That night her brother returned home, and uh, before dinner he made, a, he made quite an interesting thing, and I had no problem with it. He says, well, would y'all like to have uh, a drink or, or two before dinner? And Christy said, sure, and I said, sure. And Christy began to drink, and I began to drink. And she began to act the same way she had the night before. And I realized that she had been drinking the night before. You see, but it never had a... We were not... That night, we were drinking. The night before, we weren't drinking. And I had no idea that she was drinking behind my back. It didn't occur to me that she would be doing that. Because you see, I thought alcohol was not a problem. Drugs were the only problem. Right. Right. And I knew at that point that Christy was an alcoholic. Now, 
And uh, I came back and continued to go to Al-Anon. Now, if you, will, if you will begin to see that I am in a quandary here, a problem, you see, because I'm going to Al-Anon meetings now. I went to Al-Anon meetings before drinking was a problem, quote-unquote, right? So I'm going to Al-Anon meetings listening to y'all talk about all the crazy things that you used to do when your alcoholic was drinking, laughing at what you're doing, and then I'm going home and doing them for the first time. <laughs> You know, I'm sitting at meetings laughing with you about how crazy it is to hunt for bottles. I've never hunted for a bottle before. Go home, hunt for bottles. <laughs> you know, I had never given Christy the Al-Anon kiss, you know. <laughs> well, so I heard... I, I've heard about these things. I'm going home and doing them, you know? Yeah. Bob, Bob and Carol, a, a fellow resident of mine and his wife, lived in an apartment complex next door. They're coming over one day. I looked out through the window, you know, and uh, I looked out through the window. And I said, oh, Bob and Carol are coming over here. I said, isn't that nice? I said, you know, we never have anybody over at the house anymore. Nobody ever asks us out anymore to, to, to their house. You know, I said, it would be nice to have some company. And Christy said, I don't want to see them. I said, well, we don't have much choice. I mean, they're on their way over here. It's not like we're invited. I mean, they're on their way over here. We've got to do it. And she says, I don't want to see them. And I said, well, get, they're on their way. I mean, they're going to knock on the door. She says, we can hide in the hall and pretend we're not here. And they'll, you know, they'll go away. And sure enough, that, you know, that, that works. You know, they knocked on the door. They rang the doorbell. We're hiding in the hallway. And, you know, eventually they went away. All right. Now, for Christy, you understand that is rational thing, you know. She, she sees someone coming. She doesn't want to see them. She devises a plan in order to circumvent that happening. The plan succeeds. I wanted to see them, and I was hiding in the hallway. <laughs> Some are sicker than others. We went to a meeting called the Family Afterward Meeting. It was a mixed AA and Al-Anon meeting that, that Billy and, and Jerry uh, were at, and, and, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed that because I was still, I, I love, began to love alcoholics then, still love alcoholics today. It was just, I just love alcoholics. You know, whenever I meet anybody on the street, if I particularly like them, I thought, well, they must either have been raised in an alcoholic home or be an alcoholic or be married to one. Well, if I like them, something's wrong, you know. <clears throat> But, um, but, you know, I loved alcoholics. I loved being at the meetings. I loved being in the family afterward because I loved being in the meetings with the alcoholics in, in this open discussion meeting that was there. And uh, one night we were talking, actually, we were talking about humor in the program. You know, we were talking about laughter, just kind of what I started this out with. And, you know, it, it is kind of crazy, you know. I just noticed it happened with Christy today, you know. Uh, and, you know, and, and it happens with AA speakers all the time, with Al-Anon speakers. You know, people talk about all this terrible stuff that used to happen, and we laugh at it. You know, we laugh at all this awful stuff that used to happen and then we start talking about how good it is today and we all cry you know <laughs> well we were discussing this kind of paradox and doing that you know and it got okay, my turn to share and uh, I thought I was particularly particularly brilliant that night because I began to discuss the difference between tragedy and drama in the ancient Greek playwrights with particular reference to Euripides <laughs> And uh, I thought I'd been extremely enlightening on the subject. I was really very proud of, of, of how I'd helped the people who were there at the meeting, both AAs and Al-Anons. And, uh, and a woman come, came up to me after the meeting who'd been in Al-Anon quite a while, and she said, Jim, we come to these meetings to share our experience, strength, and hope, and not our education. If you don't have any experience, strength, and hope, stay quiet. I still have a resentment against that woman. <laughs> Billy, I told this story in front of a, someone a number of number of years ago, a young man named Ted from Dallas, and he came up to me afterward and he knew the woman who had told him. <laughs> she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. You know? And it's something that I try to remember today, to try, to try to share me with you, my experience, my strength, and my hope. Because you see, lots of people are better educated than I am. Lots of people have more knowledge than I am than I have, but no one is me. And I'm the greatest gift that I can share with you. 
I'm the greatest gift that I can share with you. And that, that is what I hopefully try to do somewhat, is to share some of who I am with you, because that's the only real gift I have. As you see, all my knowledge is, is a gift from God. You know, my, I, I don't know why, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I know the average is, yeah, I have better than normal intelligence. Yeah, if I didn't say that I had greater than average intelligence, yeah, I'd be lying, you know, I'd be false humility. But that's a gift, yeah. That's nothing that I did anything about. That was something I was born with. You know, I was born into a family that encouraged education. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, my education is a gift, too. It's nothing that I did. I, it's just something that was expected. It was something that just went, happened. Yeah. So all that is a gift. All that's. Is, is, is really unimportant. But what is important is who I am. Who I am. And that's what I should try to share with you. Because you see, I spent a lot of my life thinking that what it was, what was important is what I did or who I knew or what job I was doing or how I was doing this or what I was doing that. I have a, have a, a woman in my, al- my home group at home who calls that, yeah, I used to be a human doing, I'm trying to become a human being. Yeah. I identify greatly with that. Yeah, I was a human doing. And now I'm trying to become a human being, who I am, not what I do. The um, continued on in that. Christy continued to drink. Just the fact that I continued in Al-Anon is, I think, a uh, it was a gift. It was a grace of God. You see, because at that time I was still, I still had that pulley system, you know, and I knew I was smarter than all those women in that room. And in 1979, there weren't very many men in the room. And I knew I was smarter than they were. You know, hey, Christy was going to AA and it wasn't working. All right? Now, she was picking up lots of white chips. You see, because when I, because, you know, I was hunting for those bottles. You know? See, when I found a bottle, an empty at home, I could say, Christy, you've been drinking. And Christy would say, no, 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 no. I've already picked up a white chip for that bottle. <laughs> and so we'd throw that bottle away. So what I had to do, notice... My verb is carefully chosen. Words are important to me. I had to do. I had to find a bottle that had some in it. That was difficult. (laughs) Place it back in its hiding place and then come back two hours or eight hours later or the following morning and pull the bottle out and then I knew she had been drinking at that night. And you know what? Once I knew things would change because if I went, if I confronted Christy with it and I went to an open AA meeting with her, she'd pick up another white chip. (laughs) Didn't do anything about the drinking. Didn't do anything about the drinking. But I thought that if I knew what was going on, I could do something about it. Had to know. Had to know. Well, yeah, we moved from Dallas, Texas to Columbus, Georgia. I immediately started, stayed in Al-Anon, kept on going, um, joined a little group and, and have joined that home group. I was like the sixth member of that group uh, at that point, and, uh, and I've been a member of that home group ever since uh, in Columbus. It's the Star Mount uh, Al-Anon group. I'm very, very pleased to have that as my home group. I, um, I, I'm always... I'm always particularly pleased with uh, people uh, and I'm proud of people who say that they can, I've heard speakers say, you know, like people from my home group send you, you know, want to kind of send you a hello or whatever. And I'm afraid to tell my home group that I ever go out of town speaking because they'd say, what? You know, <laughs> as sick as you are, people ask you to go out of town and speak. <laughs> if I don't tell them, they don't know. <laughs> But uh, moved moved to Columbus. Christy continued to drink, uh, and eventually got sober. Boom. Now, none of that that I did had anything to do with it. Christy got sober, and some very good times began. For three years, we had wonderful sobriety. Lillian, my other mother, introduced us as Christy said to everybody in AA in the state of Georgia. Al-Anon, AA. I mean, we went to conventions. We went to AA conventions, Al-Anon conventions. We went to coffee cup campers, these uh, AAs and Alanons who traveled around, you know, in, in our, yeah, we, we met all, we met, you know, the AA Alanon gypsies, you know, I mean, it was, you know, we met everyone, and it was wonderful, you know, felt just a part of this wonderful fellowship, just AA and Alanon all around us, and it was marvelous. And then I began to get sick again, 
Because you see, I began to suspect that Christy was drinking. I began to have fear that she was drinking again. And the reason I say is I got sick is because, you see, I didn't talk about it with my sponsor. I didn't talk about it in my group because what if I were wrong? What if I were falsely accusing her of something she wasn't doing? Falsely accusing. Does that sound like that I believe that this is a disease? <laughs> sound like I think that relapse is just a part of the disease that happens if you don't treat the disease? Falsely accuse her. And I began to get sick. And finally, just as when Christy began to have problems at the first time that she turned to me, finally after several months of this, I turned to Christy and I said, Christy, I need to talk with you because you see, I have gotten very, very sick because, I because I've had this tremendous fear that you have been drinking again. And my memory of that is for an hour, an hour and a half, we talked about my fears and my problems. I never asked her if she were drinking. But what I said was, is I'm sure that this has had to affect the way that I treat you in our relationship. And I need to let you know what's going on with me because these fears, I'm sure, are, are, have interfered with our relationship and that I'm sure that you have noticed some changes in me and I need to let you know what they're there. And I'm going to also need to talk about this with my sponsor and my group because I need to do something about this. And it's Al-Anon that gave me that ability to do it in that way rather than accusatorily or pointing fingers. And I began to talk about it and about my fears. And it was not very long after that, a very short time after that, that Christy did admit that after three years of sobriety she was drinking again. And for the next two years, it was two years before Christy really got sober again. And during those two years today, for those of you who are here for Christy, she said she, was the, she is grateful that that has been a great gift, that relapse, because of the lessons that she has learned from it. And it was a great gift for me because I really dug into Al-Anon and had to work on my own recovery. See, sometimes people in, in my, my home group will say, well, you know, Al-Anon really works for me, but, you know, I don't know what I would do if, uh, if, my, uh, if, if my alcoholic relapsed. And I said, well, I'm one of the lucky ones. I know Al-Anon works even when relapse occurs. See, I'm one of the lucky ones. I know it works. Yeah. I, um, I began to sponsor a, a man named Sam. Sam asked me to be a sponsor soon after all this happened. And as is usual with people that I sponsor, I got a lot more from Sam than I ever gave to Sam. Sam uh, Sam's wife was still drinking. Uh, she was having a hard time getting sober. She'd have periods of sobriety or not. And Sam and I had, a, had a, uh, just a great relationship together. We, uh, he owned his own business. Uh, was pretty much free to come and go as he chose. I would, we'd, we'd eat lunch together several times a week. Uh, on days that we didn't have lunch, we'd meet for coffee. And uh, afterward, <clears throat> and things were really, you know, we began to have a, a close relationship here. And I was calling Sam, and I'd say, Sam, I've, I've finished seeing my last patient. You've got a little while. Can, you, can we meet for lunch? He'd say, sure. And I'd call him up in the afternoon and say, well, I've got to go to the hospital. You want to go out for coffee for about half an hour, you know, between the time I finish at the office and go to the hospital? He'd say, sure. And, you know, after this happened for a while, I began to think, I'm driving this guy crazy. You know, I'm calling him all the time, asking him to go to lunch or go out for coffee. You know, you know maybe I better hold back and not call him at all and see if he calls me. I bet he is sorry he ever asked me to be his sponsor. And, you know, there's something inside me that said, no, Jim, don't do that. And I told and I and I, I took the risk, and I told Sam what was going through my mind. And he said, well, Jim, I'm glad you didn't do that. You see, because it makes sense. I mean, my, I own my own business, and I can pretty much leave most any time. Yeah, and of course you call, because your schedule is more, is, is, is tighter, more, 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 more scheduled. You see, but then what I began to look at is, is Sam and I had developed a close friendship. See, and I didn't think I was worth that. I didn't think that I had what it took to have that close a friend, that someone who really knew me couldn't want to be my friend. And I had to dig down deep and begin to look at my, some of those own issues of self-esteem and some of those own issues of, of shame and how I felt about myself as a man and how I felt about myself as a, as, with, with friends. Because I, I began to see it here, that was the problem, is I couldn't believe that Sam really wanted to be my friend that And I think it's one of the problems that we men have in the program. Is it yes, quite often, you know, 
We might not have had a close male friend since, uh, since high school. And somehow we might, and we lose that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we, we tend to sometimes find it easier to talk to women in the program. Because you see, women will tell us what we want to hear. They don't be as hard on us, you know. And, uh, I don't know, you know, sometimes it's real nice being, you know, having 12 or 15 women at a meeting and two or three men at a meeting. Yeah, you know. Uh, Forbes was talking about how how he liked the attention today when he was giving a talk. Yeah, you know, I kind of like the attention. You know, you get a little bit of attention if you're one of two or three men at a meeting. Yeah. yeah. But getting one-on-one with that man after the meeting, yeah, that's that's tough for me sometimes. It's better than it used to be. I, um, during this time, I had to realize that I had to, that my happiness had to be between me and my higher power. Because, you see, I'd look to Christy to be happy. You know, I had, she was supposed to make me happy, I was supposed to make her happy. And when she was either drinking at this time in this relapse or in that dry, drunk depression that she had, she wasn't much fun to be with. And it had to be okay for me to find fun outside that, outside of her. And I spent a lot of time with my friends in AA and, and, and Al-Anon during that time, my recovering friends. A lot of times with the guys I sponsored, a lot of times with my friend in AA and Al-Anon. And, you know, I went whether or not Christy did or not, and, and I was okay whether or not she was or not, and I couldn't worry about whether or not what was going on with her. Christy was in a... <clears throat> uh, I, I had a hard time with trying to work the principles of these programs and, 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 and with Christy at that point. I, uh, uh, we were going to marriage counseling once a week. Christy was in treatment at a psychiatric hospital, and we were going to marriage counseling once a week, and they were trying every drug in the world they could in order to find a cure for Christy's depression, and they had her on... You know, they had her on every antidepressant. They had her own lithium. Mel- I mean, they tried her on every drug in the world. And uh, trying to find some reason for her depression, you know, I kept telling them, I think if we focused on treating her alcoholism, she'd get better. But, you know, yeah, it was real hard trying to, trying to let go of her and yet having this and being in these marriage counseling sessions and everything. I remember at one point, Christy was going back in the hospital because she was very, very depressed. And, and the therapist uh, who we did marriage counseling with, you know, came in, and this had been arranged ahead of time, and, and she came in, and, and the therapist said, well, Jim, Christy has something she wants to ask you. And she said, Christy, you know, would you please ask Jim? And Christy said, you know, I'm asking, you know, this very, set up very therapeutically, of course. Says, you know, you know, what, what, and she says, I really need, says, I, I'm so depressed, I think I need to come back into the hospital for a while, because I'm really not functioning very well. And I really need some things from the house. And I don't think that I have the energy to go home and pack my bags. And I made a list of the things that I want you to bring for me. Would you please do this for me? This is what I need. And I said, no. And the therapist said, well, Jim, do you hear that Christy is asking for what she needs from you? And I said, yeah, except I don't want to do it. And I said, and if I do it, I'll have a resentment. And I'm not going to have a resentment over this. You know, and I think she can do it. And you know what? Christy went home and packed her own bag. Now, I'm not saying it was right or wrong for her to ask. But what I'm saying is that I knew that I, if I did that, I was going to have a resentment about it, and I was not going to do it. Yeah. Now, you know, and I now if I did that 100% of the time, I'd be a selfish SOB, okay? But yeah, there are times when, yes, it's okay to say no. When I can say no, Christy and other people who I love in my life can believe yes. But when I can't say no, when I say yes, they don't know whether or not I mean yes or no. And I have to be able to say no when I mean that. Even if it's, even if it's just, no, I don't want to. No, good reason, no. And then yet when I say yes, they can believe it. During this time, um, a lesson that we had learned earlier in Dallas, Texas came up because um, a therapist that we would seen there when Christy was in her first treatment in Dallas had taught us we were going to a counselor at that point who just worked with alcoholic couples and that, that she, was in our, she was in our fellowship of Al-Anon herself. Her husband was a recovering alcoholic. But this therapist had told us no marriage is worthwhile until divorce is possible. And that became very true during this relapse. Now. Uh, when Christy first heard that the first time or the second time, she didn't like it at all. But what that therapist meant was whenever 
if I'm in being married, if I'm in a marriage because I think I have to be, because I can't live without her, then I'm going to feel trapped. But at a point when I'm saying, I am in this marriage because I want to be, I know that even if she is not here, I'll be okay, then that marriage can be successful. When divorce is possible, I can have a, a successful marriage. Christy talked about that in her talk this morning, too, when I came in that day, and I told her, I said, you remember our marriage vows uh, that we had? And she said, yes, I sure do. And I said, you know, that part of where we're saying, uh, till death us do part, we're changing that to one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. But the great part about that is, is it was real clear to me during this time of relapse that the reason I was staying to mar- married to Christy was because I wanted to one day at a time. Not because of some vows that I had given ten years before, but I was staying with her because I wanted to that day. I also told Christy at that time, at that time, as I said, Christy, I don't know how much longer I can continue to live like this. Because you see, I'm not spiritually perfect. Were I spiritually perfect, I could live with a drunk wife forever and be happy. But I'm not spiritually perfect, and I have my limits. And I don't know whether I'm going to reach my limit in another month, another year or another 15 years, but I am sure because of my spiritual imperfection that there is a limit to what I can put up with. See, and that's my character defects, not Christie's drinking, my spiritual imperfection that might make me say, I, this is all I can stand. Real clear to me. And the reason I'm in that marriage is because I want to be because I this day. Eventually, I, I took Christy to Willingway Hospital, which Dr. John Mooney had founded. Uh, there's a wonderful story about that, but, but time, uh, time's kind of late. But that, that was really not of my doing. Someone else. I listened to someone else. I decided to send her somebody else, someplace else. Somebody else suggested it. And I said, okay, I'll send her there. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have, I intuitively knew to listen to someone else's advice, although I had made a different decision. And I sent her to Willingway Hospital with Dr. John Mooney, where my father had, had sobered up in that home in a hospital that he had founded. And I went there, and, and I talked with, uh, with, uh, with Al Mooney, who's a medical director of that and, and a member of our program of Al-Anon, and I, I use his name with his permission. And we talked about the alcoholism that was rampant in his family and Christie's alcoholism. He shared with me the pain of, of his sister, particularly his sister's alcoholism, and how he felt like she might die. <coughs> Of her, of her addiction and that there was nothing he could do about it. And it became real clear to me that night that Christy could die of her alcoholism and there was nothing I could do about it. Because, you see, I knew that people died of alcoholism. You know, I'd attended their funerals. I'd read their obituaries. I'd had patients who had died of alcoholism. But, see, I had never really fully accepted that Christy could die of alcoholism. And the pain was tremendous. The pain was tremendous. And I believe it's at that night that I first really fully took the first step that I was actually powerless over alcohol because I was willing to face that pain. Finally willing to face that pain. And I remember most of that four hours home I cried. I was glad I had someone with me to share that pain. Christy almost died in that hospital. She tried to take her life and did not. Because I can put her in the hospital, but even in the hospital she can take her own life. She can't stay in the hospital forever. But it's really at that point that I began to really understand that, yes, I am totally powerless over this disease. Christy got sober. No doing of mine. Christy got sober. And now, as of this September, she'll have 10 years of continuous sobriety from that time. So glad that I continued to stay in Al-Anon, that I continued to work those steps. I'm so glad that I continued during the times of relapse, and so glad that I've continued since that time, because my life has just gotten better and better as that time has gone on. We, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, the lessons of the past 10 years have been as great as some of those others. Uh, I, uh, because my life is, has been filled with, with other people that God has sent to me in order to, to help me learn and to help in some way. There's an alcoholic by the name of Charles. And Charles was a, um, you know, 
all alcoholics are chronic, but when we talk about chronic alcoholics, you know, Charles was more chronic than most. <laughs> Whatever that means, but I think y'all understand what I mean. Charles was young. He was he was uh, uh, he was probably ten years younger, you know, five or ten years younger than I was. But he had been in and out of detox numerous times, in and out of the hospitals, in and out of the VA, in and out of the private sector hospitals, in and out of the public sector hospitals, in and out of in and out of the jail for DUIs. His family was rather prominent in Phoenix City, and they had bought him a little shotgun house down on the Chattahoochee River because he'd have a roof over his head. They didn't want him at their house anymore, but they wanted him to have a roof over his head, so they had a little shotgun house. And when Charles was sober and working, he had uh, he'd drink the good stuff. And when he was not working and drinking, he'd wind up drinking, literally drinking sterno. And Charles would call us up in the middle of the night. And if Christy answered, she had talked to him. And if I answered, I'd talk with him. And he'd be at 2 o'clock and he'd be drunk and he'd say, I'm going to die. I'm drunk. He said, you know, I'll do anything you tell me. What can I do? I want to get sober. And I'd say, come by the office tomorrow to see me, Charles, and we'll talk. And, of course, the next morning he wouldn't be drunk and he wouldn't show up most of the time. But every once in a while he would and those calls would come, you know, and he'd be drunk. I'll do anything. Well, I, one day as I was leaving the hospital, I, I went out to the back and Charles is sitting in the doctor's parking lot. And he said, he said, Jim says, I'm, I don't know what to do. He says, I'm going to die unless I stop. I'll do anything you tell me to do. I will do anything. Just, just tell me what to do and I'm willing to do anything. You know, I'd finished up my day. I was ready to go home. And I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do later on, but you're coming home with me right now. He said, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I said, I said, Charles, you just told me you'd do anything. Tonight you're coming home with me. You know. So I put him in the car. He uh, peed on my car seat. But you know, that dries, you know. You know, it always dries. Took him home. I mean, he was just dirty, filthy, you know. And I, I we let him take a shower, and I gave him a sweat, uh, some sweat, a sweatsuit to wear. Uh, it was kind of late. I think the fam, uh, and well, we were eating kind of late, and the daughters were eating. We offered him some food, but Charles wasn't real hungry that night. <laughs> Introduced him to the daughters. They were doing the homework, and then Charles went on to bed. Got up the next morning, and uh, as I was gonna doing my meditation or whatever, and, and I got him up to, to. Uh, got him up to go shower and as he came back from the shower I was I realized as I was sitting in my, my living room I was on my knees by my chair saying my morning prayers which I which I do almost every morning I should say every morning but I have to be totally honest almost every morning and uh, and then Charles was going to go in and I you know and I, I don't know what plan we made I think I was we were going to try to get him to the VA hospital to go to detox or whatever but uh, on the way as we were getting in the car Charles said you were on, as I walked through the living room, says you were on your knees. I said, yeah. He said, you were praying? I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I've been coming around AA for 10 years, and he says, I've heard lots of people talk about praying, but you know, I never knew they actually did it. I thought they were just talking about it. You actually do that, don't you? I said, yeah. There's an old saying around it in AA that we may be the only big book that someone sees. Yeah. Uh, Charles wanted to go by uh, by his house before he went to the VA hospital, and he was supposed to come by the office a little bit later on, and we were going to try to arrange some transportation, and he never showed up. And uh, a while later, Charles died in jail, had a seizure. He'd refused medical help, had a seizure, and died. But you know, before that time, see, I, I couldn't get Charles sober. I couldn't get Charles sober. I'm powerless over the disease of alcoholism. But you know, after coming home that time, Charles kept saying, Jim, you introduced me to your daughters like I was somebody. You, and that night was probably the most important night of his life for the last ten years of his life simply because I was willing to reach out. Hmm? And you know, I even reached out fairly selfishly because when he saw me out of the hospital, I didn't want to sit there and talk with him. I wanted to go home. So I just said, come home with me. You know, I wasn't out of any kind of great sense of duty or anything. Just come home with me. I want to go home. 
He said, you treated me like somebody. He deserved, he was, Charles was a prince. Charles was a prince. We have a young man living with us now named John, and uh, Christy, uh, Christy talked about John some. He's 24 years old. He's six years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he's, uh, uh, as Christy said, he's our non-consanguineal son, uh, non-blood relative, non-con John. And, um, but uh, but John, is, John is my son. I used to say he's like a son, but he, he's my son. You know, he's, he's, the, he's the one I, I, I didn't have, and God didn't send you one. Uh, God, God didn't send you one the regular way, so he sent him kind of a, by a different path, okay? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and John has taught me far more than I've taught him. I mean, he has helped me grow up. I think that our children, it is through our children, I believe, that we grow up. And John has, uh, John has, uh, has helped me grow up. And John has taught me, a, and helping him to learn something about what a man is, I have, I have been forced to learn about what being a man is. Okay. And, um, but you know, it wasn't always easy with John either. Yeah, there were problems that, that occurred, yeah. He, uh, John didn't, because John, you know, I, I don't like to pick easy alcoholics to enter my life, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, Christy didn't go to an AA meeting, pick up a white chip, get bright and happy and stay sober forever, okay? And neither did John. It took John a year, you know, to get sober. And during that time year, he picked up lots of white chips and he had lots of relapses and he was 17 years old and things were kind of crazy. And at one point he was working for me at the office. You know, he'd been sober a little while and he was working doing odd jobs for me at the office. He wasn't, this was long before he lived with us. But, um, but he was working for me at the office and, uh, I sent him out one day to buy a hammer, okay? And uh, I needed a hammer at home, and it was getting late, so I sent him out. I gave him $20 and to get a hammer. I had forgotten that he had only been working about two weeks, and he had just gotten his first paycheck that day, too. So here he is. He's got $20 of my money. He's got his first paycheck, and he's got my car. And... An hour later, he's not back. Two hours later, he's not back. Three hours later, he's not back, and it's time for me to go home. All right. And uh, we kind of call around, and uh, turns out that some little, some young woman, it's like, look, she was a little girl. I, she really was. She was a little girl. Some young woman in the program. They had gone by and picked her up and gone to Panama City. Four-hour drive from Columbus. Now, as it turned out, one time before I'd been out of town and I'd left my keys with him and John had taken my car out for a little joy ride and I had told him, John, if you ever use my car again without my permission, I will press charges. That is theft. And we called the police, filed a report, and pressed charges. Now, after about three days, the money ran out, the money, the beer, and the pot ran out. <laughs> and they came back home from Panama City. And the police arrested John. And, uh, and took him down to the jail. And John spent about three weeks in jail. Okay. One of the hardest things that I've ever done, but you see, John learned his lesson. Now, of course, the lesson that I would have preferred for him to learn is don't drink beer and don't smoke pot. You know? Now, he continued to drink beer and smoke pot, but he never stole my car again. And, uh, you know, and I tell people today, as I said, you know, luckily God has given me more of life stuff than he has most people. And, yeah, if, uh, I, I suggest to people that if they, if they aren't going to be able to afford a rental card, if somebody steals your car, don't lend it to them. All right? Now, it's okay for me because I could afford the rental car. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, don't, don't lend, you know, when I, give, I, and when I make loans, I give gifts. I tell, whenever, I, whenever I loan anybody, whether it's $5 or a little more than that, I say, this is a gift to you. If I ever get it back, I'll be surprised. <laughs> you know? And then when they give it back to me, I just say, thank you, God. What a wonderful gift. You know? Yeah. But I'm not giving away money that's going to keep food off the table of my children. God's given me more of life stuff than he has most people, and I believe it's okay for me to be a little bit more generous with it than I would suggest for anybody to be. Yeah. It's... Um, it's been a, a good time. John, I, I'm glad I put up with all that. John's been just a wonderful addition to the family. He, is, he has taught me so much. Uh, he's been, uh, been great. It's, it was very difficult after that. We went through a lot of, a lot of real trouble. He, uh, 
he was involved in a very unhealthy relationship for two or three years with a young woman in, in, in AA, and they were involved in a very unhealthy relationship in which he tried to get out of and get back into and get out of and get back into. And during that period of time, there was a lot of friction because I was the one, because we would, would talk about this unhealthy relationship, and he'd say, I'm going to get away, and then he'd be dragged back into it or allow himself to be dragged back into it. And, and, you know, in those times, I had a lot of questionings about what I was doing, what my part in that was, and how much I should do and how much I shouldn't do. And there's a part of me that, you know, felt again that I was, I was not worthy of this young man's love. And it was hard for me to take the risk because, you know, some people didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. Some people didn't, didn't understand that. But, you know, I believe today that one of the things is, is I think that my God would rather me risk loving too much than to be safe in loving too little. To risk loving too much and being safe and loving too little. You know, I can be grandiose at times. I'm not, I, 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 can, I can plant huge schemes in my head about this and that, what I'm going to do here and what I'm going to do there. And, uh, and sometimes I, you know, I, I, I can, uh, you know, in my profession and others, you know, I can have about ways to help tremendous numbers of people, you know, people that just do what I wanted them to do or provide me with the means to do that. But more and more I realize that, yes, you know, my job in life is to treat each and every person that I meet like a prince or princess. There's a little quote from the Talmud, and, I, and I've forgotten exactly, what, exactly how it goes, but to paraphrase it says, to love one single human being is identical to loving the entire universe. To love one single human being. You know, I'd, you know, I'd like to build some big... Some big AA clubhouse, Al-Anon clubhouse, or treatment center for families of alcoholics, and them, and and let everybody come there, and just everybody just have a wonderful time getting well together. Okay? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. But sometimes my job is just to hold one person's hand and do what I'm supposed to do that day. I've gone, I've gone way over. It's uh, and I want to thank you for for being here with me tonight. I was talking with Billy after the talk, and, and what maybe some of you don't know who've never been at a podium like this is that this is a dialogue. You know, I wasn't talking to you, but you talk to me when, when you shake your head or nod your head or look at me or, or doing that, and, and, and it's very, very different at times with different groups that, that, that I talk to, and, and y'all are a wonderful group. You have, you have loved me and, and, and shared yourselves with me uh, tonight, as I hopefully you believe that I have shared me with you. In closing, uh, I always close the same way. Well, I, I've got one other thing before I close, and again, I'm running late, but but because I because it, it, it has to do with with the serenity happens because I, I, I because uh, in, in, because of what I believe that serenity is. And serenity, uh, uh, I used to think was some kind of total peaceful calmness. That, that pervasive peacefulness or calmness. But you say, I don't think that's what it is. I think serenity is something deep down inside of me that is always there. And there may be pain here and anger here and sadness here and gladness here. All right? And all those things may be mixed up, but this, the serenity here is down here. The first time I remember understanding that and feeling that in some way was, it was when John was drinking and drugging and I was worried about him and I was driving along in my car and I had this, this feeling of, of pain because I was, I, was, I was fearful of him. And all of a sudden, there was this thing that deep down inside that said, I'm going to be okay. I didn't know that John was going to be okay. I didn't know our relationship was going to be okay. I knew I was going to be okay. Just like with Christy, when I had to, she might die of her alcoholism, but I was going to be okay, that serenity. And the best way that I know of, of describing that is, is by an old song uh, that I had a, uh, that I learned in a little church, in a little Methodist church that I grew up in in Manchester. And, it's, and the first verse is, there's a joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And the last verse, there's a peace that passeth understanding down in my heart. A peace that passeth understanding. Anger, pain, sadness, but a peace down inside that says, I'm going to be okay. I will close now. And in doing so, I want to I want to close with a little prayer, uh, a prayer that's on our, our just for today piece of literature that both AA and Al-Anon has, and it's a prayer that was written by a man named Francis who lived in a little hill town named Assisi, in uh, in, in in Italy. 
And if you would, if you'll join with me, if you want to lower your head and or look up at the, the stars, or just look ahead in whatever way you'd like to join me, please just join me with this. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I used to think that eternal life was something that happened after we died and was had something to do with pearly gates and golden golden streets, but now I believe that eternal life is something that I'm sitting right smack dab in the middle of living one day at a time. Thank you.